Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 5th, 2019. This is episode 2453 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Wednesday, so it is time for Interview Day. What do we got on Interview Day for you today? Have you heard of the podcast and blog called Radical Personal Finance with Joshua Sheets? If you have, the reason you may have is because you might have heard me on that podcast well over a year ago. Uh, it was actually almost two years ago. I think Josh was just really getting that podcast up to steam. He's done over 600 episodes now. And uh, he teaches people how to put their financial life in order And I don't think we are 100% in, in, in agreement with everything, but I think that his philosophy is very much in line with the modern survival lifestyle planning that I teach. And I'm really excited to bring him on today. Josh says there could or may very well be, or in fact it just is, an economic crisis coming. Uh, one of the things I'm going to talk to Josh about today is what do you mean by economic crisis? But we're going to talk about surviving and thriving during an economic crisis with Josh today. We'll do that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox.com. Uh, I love being a ButcherBox customer. ButcherBox is the only sponsor I have that doesn't pay me in money. They pay me in meat. That's how much I like the product. You think that? First of all, you guys know me. If I had a sponsor, I didn't like the, their product, what they sell, what they do. I wouldn't have them anyway. But do you think if I wasn't really a big fan of what ButcherBox produces from meat, I would accept payment in meat? Yeah, I get a big old box of meat every month, and I usually add stuff onto it because there's so much cool stuff there. If they can keep me happy with the meat that they provide, they can keep you happy. And I'll tell you what, ButcherBox is, I really love what ButcherBox is doing. There is a huge case for the 100% you know, pastured model of things. ButcherBox is kind of creating a transitional path for farmers to grow at scale to be able to serve a customer base as large as they have. So they're doing things like basically, if you think of pastured poultry, instead of pulling chicken triders around, they're taking these old chicken farms where people have failed, and they're basically helping providers buy them out and using those same barns to grow you know, 10%, 20% of the chickens they were before and putting them in kind of a wagon wheel model, pasturing them around, allowing them in and out as they see fit of the barn. They're doing similar things with pork, etc., They're doing straight-up grass-fed beef. And what that does is that helps farmers transition. And it certainly gives you a higher-quality product from an animal that you know is treated humanely. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I love ButcherBox. Check them out today. And remember, MSB members, you get $10 off every month if you have a one, an annual subscription. That's $120 back in your pocket just by being an MSB member. Next up today, Backwoods Home. Look. It is very easy for me to endorse ButcherBox that we just talked about because they pay me in meat and I eat it every, I eat it all the time, man. I've eaten some ButcherBox meat at least a couple times a week. Backwoods Home's even easier. Why? Because I was a customer of theirs for almost 20 years before I even started the Survival Podcast. So when they approached me about sponsoring the show, I'm like, you're in. They're just in. Like, I've been reading your publication for, how could I not take you as a sponsor? They're a great magazine, and they're finally back in a quarterly print format with the same old great authors they've always had. Jackie Clay, Dave Duffy, Masada Ayub, etc. 
Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into our interview today with our special guest, Joshua Sheets of Radical Personal Finance. He wants to talk to us today about surviving and thriving right in the middle of an economic collapse. Thank you for having me on. Look, I've told people a little bit about you. mentioned we'd actually done an interview before. Um, and so they're kind of familiar with the basics. But before we dig into today's you know, topic in depth, can you uh, just give people a little bit of background on yourself and how you ended up doing a, a, a podcast on, on finance and economics and investing and avoiding crisis and avoiding the man and all that stuff? Like, <laughs> you know, where, where did you? Where did you – let's go back. You're like spaced out in study hall or something back in your, your senior year of high school, and you're trying to figure out what the hell do you do with your life. How do you end up from there to where you are now? So I was always a bit of a nerd when I was younger. I probably should have spent more time playing outside throwing a football, but I preferred to spend my time reading crazy books and, and researching various things. And I had a number of interests from an early age. One of those interests was I always wanted to get rich. And so I figured, well, if you want to get rich, you start by learning how to get rich. And the best way to learn is by reading. So my favorite section of the bookstore when I was a teenager was books on money and personal finance, etc. And so I expressed that interest at an early age of just simply being a personal finance aficionado. Uh, and uh, personal finance and the whole world of personal finance had a really influential impact on my life. When I was in college, for example, I was very much... Uh, compelled by the idea of using other people's money to build wealth. I was going to real estate seminars and get-rich-quick seminars, and then my brother gave me a copy of Dave Ramsey's book, The Total Money Makeover, and after reading it a couple of times, I decided to get out of debt. And so I worked like a maniac, and actually, while I was in college, I paid off all my student loans while I was in college by following Dave Ramsey's plan. And that particular plan set me up so well after college that when I got laid off from a job, I was in a great situation after I got laid off because of personal finance. Well, at that time, my former boss, when I was talking about careers that I wanted to engage in or businesses that I wanted to start, my former boss recommended to me that I consider becoming a financial advisor. And previously, being a personal finance aficionado, I had not had a high opinion of financial advisors. I used the tropes that a broker is out to make you broker and insurance is a scam. And I was very much a DIY person when it comes to advice. So I started looking I, I, at the, I'm just not sure if you know that in general, the average consumer grade financial planner, uh, financial advisor, I refer to them as financial liars. So I think <laughs> well, we I, share a lot of uh, belief there. I can help you make those arguments. And <laughs> in fact, one of my hidden agendas, I always think about creating my show for the financial advisor community in hopes that the fin professional financial advisor community can serve their client base a little bit better. So I, I wouldn't argue with you all of that, but I do think there are a number of good financial advisors. And most financial advisors are well-meaning. They just generally aren't aware of the small amount that they know and how it's applicable to clients' lives. Absolutely. Agree. Uh, so after looking into it, I decided that I would go ahead and become a financial advisor. And so I moved from, uh, I started with kind of traditional life insurance sales. I sold life insurance and disability insurance and long-term care insurance. I got my investment licenses. I started selling mutual funds. Then I started managing money. And along the way, I worked really hard at my academic education. I got a long list of credentials. I became a chartered life underwriter and a certified financial planner and a chartered financial consultant and a registered health underwriter. 
copywriter. I wound up getting a master's degree in financial planning. And I found this whole world from professional financial advice that I had never had any concept of just reading personal finance books. So after about six years of doing that, I did well. I was never a top producer, but I was a very technically competent producer, and I did well. But then along the years, I had always been listening to podcasts, frankly, Jack, including yours. I'd listened to yours for years. When I was a financial advisor, I calculated one time that I drove an average of about 40 hours a week. And I listened to audio at about two to three times speed. And so in those years, which would have been about 2011, 2012, I listened to your entire archive from the time that you started the survival podcast up until wherever number of episodes you were in about 2012. So I could consume vast quantities of audio and information and I loved podcasting. And I always thought somebody who actually knows something about financial advice should go away from the world of professional financial advice and should do it in podcasting. I used to argue with you and you would give financial advice. I was like, Jack, oh, no, that's good. But what you don't know is this this, 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 and I would have these mental arguments with you and many other people. But uh, so I decided I would try it. So I started a podcast back in 2013, and I decided to launch it anonymously. And I did so, but then I disclosed it because as a professional financial advisor, you're very limited on what you can do. And I disclosed it to my company and was quickly told that either you shut the podcast down or you're done here. Well, I had a brand new baby and I couldn't just walk away from a six-year career that was finally becoming decently profitable. So it took me about a year to figure out how to make that transition. But in about 2014, the summer, I decided that I was going to go full-time and I closed my financial planning practice and I started Radical Personal Finance because I've always felt that somebody could put together the value of technical financial advice, the numbers, the tax code, and all of that, with the motivational and behavioral side of, radic of personal finance, and try to marry those two things together. Because if you just have one without the other, for example, somebody who's very motivated is they very well may make major mistakes when it comes to actually implementing a financial plan. But if somebody is simply technical and they're all about this is technically right, then they miss out on the behavioral aspect, which is probably 80% of personal finance. And so I wanted to put those things together and I wanted to build a business that fit my own goals. And thus, about five years ago, Radical Personal Finance was born. That's how I ended up doing <laughs> what I do now. So one of the things we've talked about a lot here is the possibility of economic collapse economic crisis, uh, major recessions, things that are like um, like 2008 or like stagflation of the 70s or like the Great Depression or even worse. When you look out at the landscape today and the way things that are being run in this country and around the world, honestly, because it's a global system, how likely do you think it is the average person today will face an economic crisis? How bad do you think it can be? How do you define that? term, and what can a person do to prepare for it in advance? In my opinion, it's almost certain that all of us will face an economic crisis. But usually the reason for the economic crisis is more mundane than those of us who enjoy the world of hardcore uh, tinfoil hat survivalism would, uh, would, would think of. So the most common economic crisis would be something like losing a job. I've been laid off, walked in, had no concept that I was going to lose my job that day, had glowing reports on my 
performance, et cetera. I always thought that people getting laid off were always losers. And then I got laid off in one day and walked out the door and I never saw it coming. And it was simply because the company decided to go in a different direction. It wasn't my fault. But if I had not been prepared for that economic crisis, it would have been a major problem. Or other examples that are very mundane but so common, such as somebody being injured or somebody's spouse dying or experiencing a long-term critical illness. When somebody gets a cancer diagnosis and they spend three years taking chemotherapy, it ruins their financial lives. And so these economic crises are very, very probable. Then if you expand a little bit more from just the personal economic crisis that affects us, the majority of us will go through in our lifetimes a series of economic crises in our towns, our regions. For example, Jack, you've spent a lot of time in coal mining country. Well, the economy in those rural areas is not what it once was. And if somebody just simply stayed put and didn't move out, didn't change their skills, didn't adjust, they faced a crisis. And then when we go to the bigger picture, kind of sexier side of survivalism, I I did a whole series on my show called The Economic Crisis Nobody Wants to Even Talk About, and basically about the debt crisis. We are in a situation where the bankruptcy of the U.S. federal government is, in my opinion, absolutely certain. And nobody in Washington is even talking about it. I did the math one time, and I found about seven or nine congressmen who are somewhat actually fiscally conservative. So we've got this impending crisis that will approach more and more over the coming decades that we're going into. Now, we don't know how that's going to affect our local market. We don't know how it's going to affect the stock market. But all of us are going to face a series of economic crises in our lifetimes. I completely agree with that. I'm glad to hear you define it that way because while I do think that we're going to have basically, again, a rebasing of the United States currency, I do think it will be an incredibly terrible economic uh, suffering for the average American. A lot of the stuff that you read about in prepper fiction and stuff like that, you you know, you listen to me, I don't buy into that. You're not going to have... You know, people running around with, with, with wheelbarrows full of money trying to buy a potato, Weimar Republic style. Uh, you're not going to have some guy from Tennessee take over the country uh, that was like a mayor in Tennessee. I don't know if you're familiar with Patriots, uh, the novel that so many people start their journey from, the, you know, in, in this world. And I'm glad to hear you break it down. And as you know, it's very much in line with our philosophy here that you prepare for disaster in, in an order from starting with the individual disaster to the neighborhood, the small region, et cetera, because the most likely disaster is you. So I, I really am encouraged to hear you start out with, hey, you get cancer, you lose a job, et cetera. These things are economic disasters, economic crisis for the individual. So what are the things people should be doing to prepare for, for that inevitability that sooner or later they're going to have something they're going to have to deal with? So I would say I like to break this down into basically three areas that I think are really useful. The first thing is to actually implement a relatively mundane but well-chosen financial plan. And I think of this as just simply building a solid baseline. Many times people have a tendency to, especially in the prepper community, have a tendency to overreact to the threat of massive inflation or hyper 
hyperinflation, and then to go to extreme positions while not first putting their own house in order. But if you study the actual hardcore crises that are happening now, for example, I'm currently actively engaged in doing relief work in Venezuela, which is an end of the world as we know it scenario, hyperinflation in excess of a million percent per year, people killing each other in the streets. It's absolutely a collapsed state. It is the end of the world as we know it. And so I have some involvement there and I've been studying it with a lens towards what works and what doesn't. But whether a crisis is that kind of horrible hyperinflation total collapse scenario or whether it's losing a job, a solid financial baseline is the first step to start. So things like having no debt or having only controlled debt, very, very carefully structured debt, having a strong income, having low expenses. And the reason this is important is because it gives you flexibility. So for example, if somebody is earning, say, $10,000 a month, but their household expenses are $5,000 a month, if they go into work and their boss says, listen, we can't afford you anymore and we're going to have to lay you off, they have the option of negotiating with their boss and saying, instead of $10,000 a month, would you be willing to pay me $5,000 a month? And the boss might say, well, we'd like to keep you, but we're having hard times. But yeah, we'd be open to that. And they can take that 50% pay cut. They can keep their kids in school. They can keep food on the table. But it's based upon the basic financial foundation of not having a high debt load, having controlled expenses that allows them to do that. So the first thing is actually following basic financial advice, getting out of debt, uh, having savings, having an emergency fund, having proper insurances. In the more mundane types of, of personal economic collapses and crises that we all face, insurance is an incredibly important thing to have in place. I harp day and night on people to purchase disability income insurance. So the most likely crisis that would really harm us that we would face outside of losing a job would be not being able to work. But yet disability income is the perfect solution to solve that problem. If somebody who is facing that three years of chemotherapy treatment actually has a good, proper disability income insurance portfolio in place, they can keep the family together. And even if their disease is terminal in their diagnosis, they can spend those three years checking items off their bucket list instead of sitting down around the landlord or the mortgage company is going to foreclose on them and kick them out. Even in Venezuela right now, in the worst case, end of the world as we know it scenario, somebody who owns their house free and clear is better off than somebody who's deeply indebted. So this basic financial baseline is the proper foundation to lay. The second thing, I think, is appropriate physical preparations. Because if you actually want to disconnect yourself from the economy and an economic crisis, all of the world of preparedness, physical preparedness, comes in. If you have a food forest in your backyard that can supply for you fruits and vegetables, whether you have a job or don't have a job, you'll be able to put nutrition into your body. And so if you lose your job or you face inflation, your trees still produce, your animals still produce. If you have food saved, then... If you lose your job, you can minimize the amount of money that you spend on food and use the money instead to pay your rent because you can live on your stored food. If you have solar panels on your roof that provide for you an offset to your electricity bill right now, well, those solar panels will still keep your bill lower in an economic collapse, be it because you lost your job or because there's hyperinflation in the economy. It still works. And and so there's no downside to engaging in physical preparedness, whether that's stockpiling 
or building up systems of resource supply. There's no downside to that whatsoever. It works if times get tough or even if, it, if they don't. And then I would say number three is then making a plan to get out. And where I think the prepping community could use a new focus would be to expand the, the plan to get out, bugging out, away from necessarily running to the woods with a backpack and thinking about it economically. Because what's the best solution of how to solve a local economic crisis? I would say if you're having a crisis where you live, the best way to avoid that crisis is to go somewhere where there's not a crisis. So if the job market in rural Pennsylvania is not doing well, you may need to go to Philadelphia where the job market is stronger. Or if the economy is not good in Texas, or we should use a better example, the economy is not good in Illinois, then you should just simply load up a U-Haul and move to Texas. Or very germane to the extreme case scenario if the economy is facing massive inflation and hyperinflation in Venezuela, then you go to Brazil or you go to Paraguay or you go to Colombia. The economy in Colombia is fantastic right now if you can get there and if you have the papers to be able to work legally. So my plan, if there's a hyperinflation in the United States, I have no interest whatsoever in sitting around and running 24-hour security looking through my night vision scope wondering when someone's going to steal my food. I'm going to take my family. We're going to go to the airport. I'm going to swipe a credit card, lay down a passport, and we're going to fly to a tropical island. And I'm going to run my business from a tropical island or, or go to Paris and spend some time seeing the sights and showing my children in Europe. It's a much more sensible approach than always thinking that the way to survive an economic crisis is to hunker down and shoot all the invaders. I'd rather be sipping a cappuccino in a, par in, in a cafe in Italy than shooting people. So in your opinion, what is the most realistic way to plan for the outrageous scenarios such as hyperinflation, total collapse, you know, global financial meltdown? Yeah, I would say the most realistic way is to leave. I have met and talked to a lot of Venezuelan refugees in the United States, in other Latin countries around Venezuela right now. It is a nightmare in Venezuela right now. We're facing hyperinflation, total collapse, anarchy, war, violence. It's everything that you read about in a prepper novel and more. And yet anybody who simply got up and left Venezuela and went to another country and reestablished themselves and their family in that other country is doing perfectly fine. If that person went to the United States or Costa Rica or Mexico or anywhere, they're in that situation. And so what I try to teach people is before you invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in a cabin in the woods that you may or may not use, hopefully you enjoy going to it. There's a practical way to approach it. Start by at least making sure that everybody in your family has passports. Start by at least making sure that you have a handful of credit cards with a few tens of thousands of dollars of credit line available to you. So if you had to go down to the airport and buy some international flights and get on a plane and get out, you could at least do that. Because it's almost inconceivable that there would ever be any kind of hardcore, massive scenario that would affect every corner of the earth. It, it, I cannot come up with the context that that would happen. No matter how bad things are in the United States or no matter what war is going on between Russia and China and the United States, there's always going to be corners of the world where you could go and live at peace and be productive instead of worrying about how to stay alive. In my opinion, passports and a credit card and in an international airport are the most reasonable, realistic solution for somebody to be prepared for. 
makes me think of Fernando Aguirre. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but you know his statement was $5,000 a Glock and a passport solves most of the problems you'll ever have. And I, I think there's definitely some wisdom to that. Um, now, getting out is because the whole thing has gone completely to shit and there's not really a better alternative. What do you think the most important tool is to help you survive and thrive during an economic crisis? Let's say it's not bad enough to get out, but it's bad. Yeah, in my opinion, the number one thing is to maintain your income. If you can't keep your income, then basically everything falls apart. The basic fundamental component of an economic crisis is usually a loss of income. That loss of income may be personal, job loss. Loss of income may be due to a health risk, or the loss of income could be to collapsing economy, or the fact that you can't get paid in money that's worth anything. But the problem is income. So if you have income, you can always buy the things that you need to buy. You can build the things you need to build. You can make adjustments and move. But when you lose income, then it's really hard to adjust. I did a whole series. I did a three-part series of uh, podcasts on my show a couple years ago where I talked about here's what to do to make sure that you don't lose your job in the coming recession. Then I did a show called Here's What to Do If You've Just Lost Your Job in the Coming Recession. I did the whole three-part series at every stage. And the biggest mistake that many people make is not planning for how to keep their income strong. So if you see re recession coming, yes, it's a good time to be saving, but the best thing to be doing is making sure that you're in a situation where you're not going to lose your income. And the great thing about good financial planning is you can be proactive about this if times get tough or even if they don't. For example, one of the best ways to avoid losing your income in a recession is to make sure that you're not in an industry or a job or a geographic location that is going to feel the effects of a recession most acutely. You can go back and study the 2007-2008 recession in the United States, and you can see that different regions, different industries, different companies were affected very differently. So you want to avoid, avoid that. But on the, on the offensive side, one of the best ways that you can improve your career prospects is by being systematic and strategic about changing jobs. Many companies, many jobs, it's hard to get good raises every year. You might be making $80,000 today, get a raise to $82,000. That's helpful. But if you can go and apply for a job that's paying you $110,000, that's a massive career increase. That's a massive income increase. And so strategically managing your income, your career, your job, so that you're not behind the eight ball, but so that you're proactive and you're keeping your income up, you can avoid the most damaging effects of a recession or an economic crisis. More important than any saved asset you have is to preserve your income. Because if you can preserve income, you can eat, you can have a roof over your head, you can have a car to drive. But if you lose income, it's very hard to keep those things going. Yeah, I'll tell you what I like about that advice. That advice is good if nothing goes wrong. That's that's what I always try to teach. Let's take the most strategic plan we can for crisis and disaster that makes us better off even if it doesn't come. Because the biggest problem I see with the prepper world is they prepare only for failure. And if you prepare only for failure, you miss out on a lot of opportunity while you don't have it. Um, what I've always said about your job is the day you can't significantly move up in income or responsibility and you can't learn anything new, leave. The, the day of working for the gold watch and stuff like that, they're gone. Um, especially outside of like, I have a, uh, I guess a, an in-law of some form or another that's about to retire, uh, after 40 years of service for a local government. 
Like, I, I, and she's never had another job in her life. She's never done anything else. She's on her last six days of work. I'm like, how do you even care with six days left in a situation like that? I guess there might be some place like that, avoid, you know, if we avoid governmental collapses on that level. Um, but to me, it's always been you have a first duty to yourself and to your family, not to your employer. Now, I think when you're working for someone, you work your ass off, you do 100% all the time. But when it comes to where the future's going, if your future is not going to be better for staying, go somewhere where it will be. And I have gotten a lot of major increases in income in my life. I never got it from somebody I was working for. I always got it from somebody who wanted me enough to get me to leave someplace I already was. That was always, you know, when you're talking 40%, 50%, 60 income increases in one move, it was always a move over, not a move up. Absolutely. And I would, I would emphasize this with almost a counterpoint as well to say if you're going to lose your income or you see that your income is going to go down for some reason, I would say don't view that as a chance, as a reason to stay and fight. View it as a chance to do something exciting. Years ago when I was an active financial advisor, I met a guy who really inspired me and I met him in the depths of the Great Recession. He was a construction contractor in South Florida where I live. And here in South Florida, the construction industry collapsed, absolutely collapsed. And as a contractor, he was in a situation where his entire business had evaporated. But he was an older business guy. And as he told me, this is my third or fourth recession that I've been through. So when I first met him and he was doing, spending most of his time fishing. So what he had learned from going through so many recessions was first, he always kept his business operations very lean. He didn't borrow money. He kept all of his workers as contractors. He didn't hire employees. He only hired contractors. He kept some equipment, the trucks and such that he ran, but he always kept those things debt-free. So if they needed to be parked, they could be parked. And he always kept lots and lots of liquid cash. So one of his fellow contractors was going out of business and had bought a $150,000 fishing boat. This guy came in, offered him $50,000 of cash to bail him out, yeah. bought his $50,000 fishing boat, and he was spending three or four days a week out fishing just sitting out the recession. And so if good financial management can prepare you so that instead of fighting night and day to try to figure out how do I keep the construction business going, maybe there are ways, but recognize, hey, things are collapsing. I'm going to spend two years fishing. Or what I tell people, spend, buy an RV and show your kids the United States or go travel to Europe. Go take a year, a couple years off and wait out the recession and then come back. And now you've got an opportunity to retool to re-educate and to remarket yourself so that instead of going from the $80,000 career you were in previously, you can prepare yourself and be strategic about getting into the $180,000 career when you come back. And instead of sitting there and trying to interview with somebody for a job and say, yeah, I've been unemployed for the last two years, they ask, what have you been doing for the last two years because of the two-year gap on your resume? And you say, I took my kids to Europe and we backpacked all around Europe and Asia and we just I wanted to show them the world because they're, they're 13 years old and they'll never be in this situation again. So we homeschooled and we spent our time traveling around Europe. And 
when you do it right, you can earn in the times when things are good, keep money in things that will keep their value so that you have money to spend in a recession. And in a recession, everything is on sale. So now instead of sitting around wondering how am I going to make it, you can go and you can buy the things that are on sale in a recession, be it a fishing boat or be it airplane tickets and, and hotels in Asia. And now no matter what the economy is doing out there, you can progress intelligently in your own life. But you have to plan ahead. You have to be a prepper and prepare for when things don't go well so that you have various plans and options of what you would like to do in your actual situation when you know what the specific crisis is that you're going to wind up facing. Well, and on top of that, like, so maybe it's not going to Europe. Maybe it's not buying a fishing boat. Maybe it's capitalizing. So I, I got these lessons very, very young from grandparents that lived through the Great Depression. I remember my grandfather talking about going downtown in the middle of the Depression and, you know, they'd have a bunch of stuff at a store and it'd be like some ridiculously cheap price, even for the 19, you know, 20s, 1930s. And just saying, you know, we walked through there and we looked at it and thought, damn, that's cheap. But it doesn't matter. You know, damn, it's cheap. But if you don't have any money, it doesn't matter that it's cheap. Um, when real estate crashed in 2008, 2009, there was a lot of people looking at property going, damn, that's cheap. But if they couldn't secure financing, if they didn't have capital, right. then they couldn't take advantage of that. And I actually look at, you know, outside of like a Venezuela-style collapse or even more, not quite as bad but fairly bad Argentine-style collapse, outside of that, I look at most economic downturns as an opportunity. Uh, that includes even just basic investment. You know, people say, well, you know, you should buy when the market's down. Well, most people can't because in spite of the fact that you can hear a train coming from a mile away, ding, 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 the market's about to get ransacked, what do they do? They just sit in everything. So there's no capital available to take advantage of the fact that the market just got cut in half and we all know it's going to rebound. So I think that part of preparedness isn't just being able to get out or just being able to take time off, but also being able to have things situated so that we can capitalize on those opportunities. What do you have to say about that? I think in every single crisis – There are opportunities. If you go back and you study some of the great investors, one of my favorite is Sir Templeton, who is just this incredible investor who made his start by buying penny stocks basically in the wake of the Great Depression. And he went, parlayed that into a multi-billions of dollar portfolio that he left and created the Templeton Foundation, which still is incredibly active throughout the world. And another, just a more low-hanging fruit story, because many of us aren't interested in stock market investing. I had another client who really impacted me, and I, I worked with this guy through the uh, through the Great Recession. And this guy was his company was a, a producer of aluminum fencing in South Florida. But the difference between him and many of his competitors was his personal finances were on a solid foundation, and he had savings when he entered the Great Recession. What most construction guys do is when they're making tons of money, they go out and buy tons of stuff. Mm -hmm. This guy didn't do that. What he So what happened was in Florida, there were about seven or eight of his major competitors in the region at that time. And systematically through the two or three years when the fencing business was, had absolutely collapsed, he just simply systematically bought up most of his competitors. He often wouldn't even change the name of their company. Sometimes he would hire the person to run it. But he came out two or three years later owning a significant amount of the fencing business simply because he was prepared. 
And that is the key. Now, in order to do that, you've got to think ahead. So you've got to say, how am I going to have access to capital so that I am actually going to buy it? So I teach people, for example, I have a, I have a uh, teach people credit card course called how to borrow money safely and never uh, pay interest using credit cards. But in order for credit cards to work well for somebody as a financing source, you have to work years in advance to build a massive infrastructure before you need them. The people that get sunk with credit cards are those who go out and apply for a credit card when they need one. But if you apply for them systematically years in advance, you can have access to tens of thousands of dollars of unsecured loans available to you to buy things, to take advantage of opportunities. Having savings, having cash on hand, I'm convinced the average American has far too much money invested in their house and far too much money invested in their 401k and thus never gets the chance to actually know what it feels like to actually have money, money to take advantage of opportunities, money to spend to move to another city, money to buy something when it's cheap. And that has to start at the low uh, at the low era. So one of the mistakes I used to make when I was a financial advisor, and I learned this the hard way, I used to get people putting too much money into IRAs, 401ks, etc., because that was the most tax-optimized thing for them to do. And then I had a series of clients who, they were young, and they were well-intentioned when they opened those accounts, but then they lose their job and they start raiding those accounts or they don't take advantage of an opportunity because all their money is stuck in their 401k. And I came to the point where I would try to get people to save at least about $10,000 of savings, most of that in actual physical currency, well-secured and well-secreted somewhere, but $10,000 of savings before starting to engage heavily in 401ks and, and other types of tax-advantaged accounts. Because in a world where half the American population can't put together $1,000 of cash, if you have $10,000 of cash, you are automatically in the top probably 20 to 40% of the population, which means that if you get a great job opportunity on the other side of the country, you have the money to hire the U-Haul truck and go. If you see an opportunity to buy a cheap car from a neighbor or a cheap boat, etc., you can take advantage of those opportunities. So we're in a world which is very weird, where there are lots of people who on paper are very rich, but they never have gotten used to actually having money so that they can take advantage of opportunities or be protected from emergencies. Now, if we start there, and that's a big focus for me, is to try to get people to start by actually having $10,000 cash, and I mean physical currency. When they start there, then we can go from there. And then they start to look around and, and see, oh, I could buy this piece of real estate. I could buy that little business. And it totally changes the average, say, 35-year-old or 40-year-old's experience when they actually recognize, I can do this stuff. I can buy these deals. Uh, so I wholeheartedly agree with you. And then there are some other technical things I would just point out. You have to do good uh, bankruptcy planning, have to do good asset protection planning. Very important to make sure your assets are well protected. There's a lot of things available that most people don't talk about. We have to make sure that we maintain the value of currencies. Uh, I think the risk of the devaluation of the dollar is wildly overblown, but it is still real. So making sure that we have some money offshore, some money in other assets that aren't simply connected to cash, all those things are important as well. Okay, so do you feel? I've heard you say something that I beat into people. I, I, I scream it into people. I I call it cancer. I explain how debt is cancer. Get out of debt. Get out of debt. Occasionally, I get people that say, you know, debt is good in a crisis because the money's devalued. It's cheaper to pay it off then than it is to spend the cash now. Do you see any conflict with the advice of get out of debt? Uh, as a mitigation strategy for economic collapse. 
I don't. Um, I don't see any problem with it. Now, I, I've for years have talked with financial advisors, and the big the big gun in the personal finance space is Dave Ramsey. He is the head honcho in this space, and he is famous for brooking no disc, you know, no disagreement with his position on debt. And I've often talked with a lot of friends and said, um, you know, the reality is this: if somebody would just simply follow Dave's advice, they won't get into trouble. Right. If you don't borrow money, it's hard to get into trouble. But that doesn't mean to say, that's not to say that there aren't opportunities and there aren't ways to approach it. So I am more allergic to debt than anyone I know. I also maintain the fact that I also defend the fact that debt at some point, sometimes is very important. And I can see and lay out opportunities where I absolutely would go into debt. Now, there are some some observations that need to be made. So, for example, you have to look at somebody's actual circumstances. Let me just give you a simple, practical um, example. Let's say that I, uh, I I teach people how to establish large lines of credit on credit cards because in the United States, there's such a wash of money available on credit cards that people who are thoughtful and who are not prone to overspending should look at credit cards as a primary means of financing. Credit cards in the United States are one of the safest forms of debt because they are unsecured debt, far safer than student loans, far safer than car payments, far safer even than home mortgages, and far safer than even personal loans or bank loans because of the actual technical contractual language that is in a credit card debt. So I look at something like this. Let's say that I have $100,000 in my 401k and I have $100,000 available to me on a line of credit cards and I get a terminal illness um, that I know that I'm going to die two years from now. Now, in my case, I have a number of young children. Now, here would be a couple of options. One option would be that I take the $100,000 and pretend I don't have any life insurance, which of course would be silly for me not to do it, but pretend. Should I take the $100,000 from my 401k and spend that $100,000 on my medical care and spend it on trying to build some last memories with my family? Or should I use my credit cards to pay for my medical care and to pay for some last memories with my family and leave the $100,000 in my 401k to my wife? Now, I don't want to be in a situation where I ever owe somebody money and am not able to pay my debts as agreed. But I also would acknowledge the fact that the money that's in my 401k is in the United States as close to ironclad protected from the claims of any creditor that we possibly can get. Whereas the money that I may owe on my credit cards is unavailable to my creditors to collect on because there is no security for that debt. So, in this situation, I would very seriously look at using the credit cards to pay for my medical expenses, to make sure that my family and I could enjoy our last experiences together, and I would keep the 401k money to keep my wife going after my death. And if my credit card payments don't get paid, I'm sorry. I feel bad about it. But by knowing the law and by understanding how to structure things, you can protect yourself. And so there's not – the easy answer is no. Avoiding debt is never a bad thing. But in many ways, it's impossible to fully avoid debt. And I'm not saying you have to borrow money on a car. I've never had a car payment in my life. But we're all going to be indebted to some people in some ways. And so understanding the actual functioning of debt, which types of debt are safe, which types of debt are valuable uh, is very, very different. Just one more example from a more investor standpoint. Um, buying debt, buying real estate using debt – is absolutely going to give you a possibility for much higher wealth than buying real estate without debt. But 
it matters greatly how you buy it. And so how do you, how do you uh, own it? So, for example, it's much safer to own individuals or real estate investors than it is to own a bank. It's much safer to have a very careful amount of money owed on your real estate. So you have to think about how you approach it. Last example that's actually really appropriate to most of us. I used to think that there was tremendous value in paying off my house as quickly as possible. When I bought a house, I put down a massive down payment. I had a mortgage, but I put down a massive down payment, and I paid as much extra on the house as possible. And then I found myself in a situation where I really needed cash, and I wasn't able to get access to cash. And I realized that there is no value whatsoever in having a house that is 50% paid off from a safety perspective. It's very valuable to have a house that's owned completely debt-free, especially as a young person, because it eliminates the need for a cash outflow from your life. If you lose your job, you don't have to make a house payment. If you have to get by on a lower income, you can do it. So having a debt-free house is very valuable. But having a house that's 50% paid off is not valuable. In fact, it's not safe. I would rather, if I have a $100,000 house, I would rather owe $100,000 on the mortgage and have $50,000 in a savings account than have the house have a $50,000 mortgage and $50,000 of equity. Because if my monthly payment is $1,000 per month, but I have $50,000 in a savings account, I've got 50 months in excess of four years of safety where I can stay in that house. So it's not a simple yes or no answer on debt. Absolutely, if you can avoid debt, you should. I don't owe any money. I don't have debt. I don't like to have debt. But understanding how it works means that you can take advantage of the opportunities when they come. So I I look at it this way. I see access to credit and debt as different things. Debt is you've used the access, and if you've used it strategically, then I am fine with it. So you mentioned the $50,000 thing So uh, with the $100,000 house. That makes perfect sense. And I've always told people, no, you don't go buy a house for cash if you're not going to have any money left. But I am for paying a house down quickly if you can. I'm all for that at the same time. It's assuming that there is this cash cow sitting over here that does what you just described. But let's look at this another way. You've paid down half of your house, your $50,000 uh, right side on your home. You know, a lot of times, you you know, you mentioned like being walked out the door. A lot of times people do know they're going to lose a job. They know it's coming, but they still have a job. And if somebody makes a phone call and says, you know, hey, is uh, – Uh, does, does Joshua have a job here? They'll say, yeah. Well, how long has he been here? And all the numbers that you put on your application for a home equity loan, guess what? They'll all, they'll all be there. So I actually think there's a, a strategy in that at times of if I have this house 50% paid off, I know I'm about to take a complete nuke of my income. Before that happens, you can strategically then take and refinance that mortgage, take the cash, use the cash to finance the mortgage. And preserve the cash that you're holding back as a cash reserve. There's always strategic ways to use debt. I think that you and I are almost completely in lockstep on this, honestly. Because one of my problems when I look at you mentioned Dave Ramsey a couple times. I think his advice for getting out of debt is the gold standard by which to live. When it comes to the total aversion to debt under any circumstance and the investing advice of basically just stay in the market and get killed, that's where... Dave and I part ways radically, radically at that point. And what you mentioned about real estate, and you kind of went through it quick. I want to revisit it a second. I think it is absolutely a fool's errand if you're going to go into real estate and you're going to be a landlord and you're going to be renting property to be paying off property in full. Because there are, first of all, there's major tax advantages to not doing that. Second of all, everything's about having capital for the next property 
and all you've done is tie up everything into this property where we could be running five or six properties and mitigating risk. And I would add one more to that. I would say it's a matter of asset protection. Absolutely. So We have to think about that. Now, you're fortunate. You live in Texas. I live in Florida. Unlimited homestead uh, exemption amounts, which are very useful. Most people aren't in that situation. And so one of the things that you have to think about is is asset protection. So the simple example is a paid-off house is absolutely wonderful. But if you live in a state like North Carolina that gives you, I think if memory is right, something like $15,000 of protection from your creditors, it's in some ways almost crazy to think of having a house that's just sitting there that's not protected in some other way. Now, maybe we could do a domestic asset protection trust or some kind of fancy plan, but the simplest solution for an average person who's not going to hire an attorney and set up a domestic asset protection trust is simply this. You keep a mortgage on your house and you put money in your 401k. And if you don't want to invest the money in your 401k, then you could just keep it in cash. But the money in your 401k is protected from creditors. The money in your house is largely not. So there are so many factors that the only way that one can give good advice to somebody is to understand the particulars of a situation. Some of us have a higher profile from asset protection. Some of us have a lower profile. But being able to move the equity, and real estate especially, because there are no taxes paid on debt. This is the most important thing that people who don't invest in real estate don't realize. Yeah. When we're planning for taxes, on income taxes, there are no income taxes due on debt. So I can go and use my credit cards and buy $100,000 worth of stuff. I can take cash advances, advances from an ATM machine. I don't have any income taxes because I don't have any income. I just have a bunch of debt. Same thing is on real estate, but real estate is actually secured, so it's much easier to access capital. So in real estate, by owning property and then with your own personal house, taking advantage of the Section 121 exclusion, which allows you to enjoy up to half a million dollars of gain on the sale of a property for a couple married filing jointly, half a million dollars totally tax-free, no federal income taxes, no state income taxes, no employment taxes, totally tax-free is tremendously important. Or in investment real estate, being able to do a like-kind exchange from one property to the next, put a mortgage on it, take money out, like-kind exchange from one to the next. And we could do that for an entire lifetime and then pass that real estate portfolio on to your heirs. And depending on our estate tax planning, it's relatively easy for you to leave a million dollars of property to your son which you have a tax basis in of $200,000. That's meaning that you have an embedded tax liability in that portfolio of $800,000 of income. You leave that to your son. Your son receives a step up, step up in tax basis at your death. He receives a million dollars of property, owes no income taxes on that property. And along the way, by refinancing it with a mortgage, you can take money out of the property, use that money out of your portfolio to pay for your whatever you want to pay for. And along the way, your interest is deductible, your tenants pay it down, you depreciate the properties, you cannot make the argument that that is not a superior strategy to just simply paying cash for everything unless you have somebody with no self-control. And that's the problem. We all have to analyze ourselves and say, do I have self-control? If the answer is not, it doesn't matter how fancy the plan is, it's better to not have credit cards, not have debt because you don't get in trouble. But we all have to reach a point in time where we have to actually look at ourselves and say, do I possess self-control? Have I conquered that overspending demon? And if so, then some of these strategies really start to shine and they make a huge difference. I, I get frustrated when people don't recognize the difference that rates of return make. And uh, just very simply, if somebody is, is investing over the, the 
course of their lifetime, let's say 40 years, somebody is putting in $5,000 per year over 40 years and starting with nothing. If somebody can make, say, a 6% rate of return at the end of 40 years at $5,000 per year, that's $820,000. That's good. That's helpful. But if you can go from a 6% to an 8% rate of return by being a more intelligent investor, that's $1.4 million. I'm sorry. That is too important to walk away from because we're scared of intelligent financing. I, I completely agree. And given it an even simpler viewpoint, um, you, what you're hitting on there a lot is the importance of understanding the individual situation. You mentioned Florida and Texas both. You can't get my house. You just can't. You can, you can take everything I own almost uh, with the exception of like retirement accounts and stuff like that. But you cannot get my house. So I have a friend in Florida who's a doctor. And uh, he's done with his practice now. He's retired. But he made a lot of money. He was not your typical general practitioner. He was a uh, lead partner in a very large practice. And, but these are not extravagant people. Well, when I found out what kind of house he had, he's like this $2.5 million estate. And I'm like, that's just not you. Why, why, why did you do that? He said, well, when you're a doctor in Florida, what they do is they tell you to go out and build the biggest, most extravagant house that you can possibly afford. And if you ever get sued to the ground beyond what your malpractice will cover you for, you'll still have that because nobody can get it. Now, that would be terrible advice for a lot of people in a lot of places. But for him there... And with the income level, et cetera, and the ability to, to actually afford the property, it made perfect sense. It made absolute 100% perfect sense for him to pile that equity into there, where is that right for the next person? Probably not. So I think that the individualized approach, so everything we're talking about today is what you would call generalized tactics, knowledge, and strategies. Then they have to be broken down for the individual based on where do you live, what is your total asset net worth, what is your strategy, what is your income, all of those things. Absolutely. I'll give you one even little tip. I did a series of shows uh, on my podcast called How um, – I blanked on the title. But basically, it was asset protection for the common man. Basically, you know, don't, no need to call an attorney, but how to actually understand asset protection laws, bankruptcy planning. Because one of the risks but we didn't get into, but two big financial risks that many people don't talk about, divorce, major financial risk that is very, very likely for many of us. Economic crises frequently ensue from divorce and then also asset protection, being forced into bankruptcy in some way or shape or form or just simply having to defend yourself in court over a lawsuit. And so in that series, one of the things I point out to people is um, Florida, so Texas and Florida, gold standard. But Florida, you can actually buy a house even if your intent is to uh, defraud your creditors in some way, <laughs> yeah. and you are still protected from <laughs> yeah. homestead protection. So if somebody's yeah. facing a lawsuit, one of your things you should always have in the back of your mind is move to Florida, buy My a big house. house. <laughs> <laughs> Love Supported that, by the Supreme Court. So one of the things you always see when governments are in distress financially is capital controls. We've, we've started to see some capital controls already creeping into the United States system. What do you advise people to do to avoid capital and currency controls so they maintain access to their money even during a crisis? Yeah, this is a big, big deal for me because in many ways, if you want to do anything interesting, your biggest enemy is often going to be government. And the major risk that many people have is they're dependent upon the whims of one single sovereign government for 
their livelihood. If all of your life is in the United States, all your money is in the United States, and you're in the United States, if you do something that the United States government finds offensive, you have no backup plan. You have no ability to change. And I would say perhaps the most chilling one would be some of the controls that are already in place on uh, the amounts of money you can you can use, you can have access to, and then even on your personal freedom. For those who care about liberty and freedom, there are a couple laws that – a new one with the IRS that passed about a year or two ago and then one that's been existed for a while that, that can dramatically affect your freedom. And they are where the U.S. government will revoke your passport in a dispute either over the amount of money that you owe in taxes or in the amount of money that you owe in child support payments. The taxes one is the newest one, where now if the IRS alleges that you owe in excess of $50,000 of taxes that you're not paying, then the IRS can reach out to the Department of State and they will cancel your passport. Now, for somebody who is uh, an average employee, it might sound huge to be in a situation over a $50,000 dispute. But for many people who run medium-sized businesses, it would not be at all unusual to even have a $50,000 dispute with the IRS or possibly to actually owe in excess of $50,000. And your travel rights can be canceled under current law in the United States because the Department of State will cancel your passport. It's even more chilling if you wind up owing child support. The law is in the United States, if you owe in excess of $2,500 in arrears on child support, the Department of State can cancel your, your passport. And so if you imagine yourself in a situation where you're working, economy in the United States is not so great, you haven't been able to make your child support payments, which one quick comment on that. There's a major difference between supporting your child and making child support payments. I'm a moral absolutist when it comes to doing what's right. I believe that mothers and fathers have a duty, absolute moral duty to support their children. But I can support my children on a very small amount of money, and I can be very flexible in making sure that my child is adequately housed, clothed, and fed through simple prepping. I I might have an RV, and we might be forced to live in an RV because we can't stay in our house anymore. I might have a situation where we're eating stored food, but I'm feeding, clothing, and caring for my child. But now if I reduce that to a child support payment, I may not be able to make an $800 a month child support payment because I lost my job. Now I'm in a situation where Three months later, I'm $2,500 in arrears, and my travel opportunities are canceled. So now instead of being able to go and take a contractor job with Blackwater in Iraq making $130,000 a year, I'm forced to stay in the United States where I can't find a job. Or instead of going working on an offshore um, deep well drilling rig over in the, uh, you know, off the coast of, of Newfoundland or something, I can't, I can't do it because I can't travel. So these are some really chilling things about personal freedom. But the problem here is when you're entirely reliant on one single government. So if you offend that government, your personal freedom and liberty is diminished. Now, back to money. Same thing happens with money. There are already significant capital controls that are in place on the U.S. American population that most people don't think about. Some of the most important ones would be things like currency reports, the filing of currency transaction reports if you uh, make cash transactions in excess of $10,000, um, so things like being able to just simply 
buy things with $10,000 without being reported as somebody who is uh, suspicious. Um, one of the things I did uh, recently when I was creating a course on this stuff is I went back and I showed how one of the worst things about these current capital controls is that they're not indexed. So, for example, the requirement on financial personnel, and, and, and now the U.S., it's one of the things I didn't like about being a, a licensed financial advisor, is that currently the U.S. government forces all financial personnel who are licensed and doing business in the finance basis in the finance business to be unpaid spies for the US government by requiring those who were in that business to submit um, currency transaction reports, suspicion of money laundering. You go through classes on anti-money laundering. You turn into an informant for the U.S. government, completely unpaid, just to keep your license so you can do business in the United States. It's the reason I don't have any financial licenses anymore, one of many. But when the currency transaction reports were instituted in the wake of the Bank Secrecy Act in 1970, there was a $10,000 limit that was imposed. Now, since 1970, there has been a lot of inflation, but that $10,000 number was not indexed for inflation. If you go back and you recalculate the, the inflation numbers, in 1970, you could have purchased something with cash worth the equivalent of $65,000 in 2019. So the $10,000 number was actually what $65,000 is today. Or if we go the other way, the $10,000 item today would have only cost you $1,500 in 1970. So there was a massive amount of room. But that capital control, that currency control, and I should use currency control because it's a currency control, not a capital control. That currency control was not indexed. So now that limit went from $10,000 to $1,500. Or another good example would be something like the currency that's actually in the population. The largest bill that was ever issued for public use in the United States was a $10,000 bill. Now, there were higher denominations that were used, like $100,000 and such, but those were only used for bank transfers. But you used to be able to get, in the United States of America, a $10,000 bill. Now, in 1945, they stopped printing them, and after 1969, notice the, the note, the 1970, in 1970, the, uh, all of the $10,000 bills and bigger ones were retired. So since 1970, the largest bill that you can get and use is a $100 bill. But every single year, inflation marches along. So your $100 bill that was worth a lot in 1970 is worth a whole lot less today. A $100 bill in 1969 would have cost you, uh, what $100 item would have cost you $685 in today's dollars. Or flipped in the reverse, a $100 item purchased today would only cost you $14.58 in 1969 dollars. So people often, my point of this is people often think that currency controls, capital controls are only something that happens in a worst case scenario. No, all of us live under currency controls. All of us live under capital controls now. They've just been imposed on us little by little by little. So we all have to think about it because last kind of to the worst case example, let's say you're in a situation where you have to flee the United States or any country. And we, it's hard to talk about the United States because the United States is one of the largest, one of the most stable um economies in the world. And I think people vastly overstate the risk to U.S. American persons of economic collapse, etc. So it's a lot easier if you imagine you're in Argentina. Uh, but if you're in Argentina, capital controls were imposed on you. So yeah, you've got all this money in your 401k, you've got all this money in your bank, but you can't get it because it's illegal for you to convert from the Argentine money into dollars. It's illegal for you to get the money out. And if that happens, it doesn't matter how much money you had saved. And let's say we're back in the US, in a US bank, you're sunk. So the only way to protect yourself, I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. There are two ways to protect yourself. Number one, you can own assets 
that are outside of the jurisdiction of sovereign governments. There are some kinds of assets that are very well suited to being outside of the control of any government, even though they impose certain amounts of controls. The obvious example here, the best solution in many ways, are things like precious metals. Precious metals are impossible for governments to control, no matter how much they legislate it. And I, I've, I don't want to go into the details of even when, when, when gold bullion and such was, was restricted and banned in the United States, but we can look at that, and there's a lot of important lessons there. The second solution is to make sure that you have assets that are under the control of a different government than the government of your place of residency. So I teach people nobody should have all their money in the place that they live. Nobody should have all their money controlled by, if you live in the United States, controlled by the United States. At least try to bring in a couple of other governments, maybe the Canadian government, maybe the Singaporean government, maybe the Austrian government, wherever, um, at least try to bring in some other governments. Because at this point in time, the place we sit in human history, governments don't respect the individual, but they do respect other governments. And so the only way that I see for an individual to, to develop and maintain liberty is to pit competing governments against each other while allowing the individual to live their life in a free way by having these governments competing. So that's, that's, I hope that wasn't too philosophical, but that's my answer, Jack. Okay. Um, do you see cryptocurrency playing any role in this? I think cryptocurrency has opportunities, but I'll give you my concerns about it. Number one concern is this. I see too many people looking at cryptocurrency as an investment and not in use. The thing that is harming cryptocurrencies in general is the fact that more people are hoarding them than are using them. It's the same problem whether you face it with cryptocurrency or whether you face it with gold coins. The problem with gold coins and silver coins is people don't use them. They hoard them. And so in the hoarding, you're looking at it an investment, and until it actually gets used, then it doesn't really work. Another major concern with cryptocurrencies, however, is the actual privacy of the transactions. And so in a, in, to answer the capital control question, yes, if you can invest in a stable cryptocurrency and own a stable cryptocurrency, or of course, maybe it goes up, then you have the ability to go from one sovereign jurisdiction to another jurisdiction, walk through immigration, say nothing to declare, put your access your wallet in whatever way you access your wallet in the other place, convert the money into local currency, and you're good to go. So cryptocurrencies have that solution. I get really concerned about the privacy of cryptocurrencies because while cryptocurrencies can be used privately or at least if you do all the steps right to some degree secretly or anonymously, I get really concerned about the transaction record of cryptocurrencies. The fact is the blockchain can be helpful in recording transactions, but it records a transaction for every single transaction. So if you can be identified as the owner or controller of a certain wallet, now all of your financial transactions can be, can be held. So I still, I try to keep things simple. From this perspective, if people just did one thing, and that was spend cash, cash is still the absolute best way to protect privacy and the absolute best way to control your expenses, to budget, etc. Just spending cash is, is superior in many ways to cryptocurrency. So yes, cryptocurrencies have a place. I think we're still early in the game, and the next five years are going to make a big, big difference because a lot of the crypto developers are working on some of these problems, and I really hope we get some of the problems solved. All right. Uh, next, let's talk about what you're calling a financial bug out bag that will get you through an economic crisis. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Here's what I notice. If you go online, go to YouTube and search bug out bag, 
you will find many things listed in that bug out bag. Somebody will have a cool knife and a cool lighter, etc. But I can't remember ever watching a video where somebody pulled out their passport and said, here is my passport. I can't remember everyone, this, this has happened, but most bags don't include several credit cards from different issuers, etc., saying, hey, here are a couple of credit cards. These credit cards all have a $10,000 limit available on them. I very rarely have seen a bug-out bag that had a second passport. I very rarely have seen a bug-out bag that had some alternative form of identification that could be used across a national border. People just don't seem to think much about crossing a national border. But back to my point, if I were going to bug out, why would I I – have, I have young children – why would I go to the woods and set up a tent in the woods when I can go to the airport and buy a hotel room in another country? It's a lot easier for me to fly to Panama City. I can take all my podcast equipment. I can take my computer with me. In three hours, I can be in Panama City. I can rent an apartment in Panama City, and I can keep my business going if I can get to the airport with enough money to get out when I need to get out. And so one of the most Basic preparations that should be made in a bug out bag should be form of identification. You should have multiple forms of identification. I'll give you a simple example. Um, it is in the United States of America difficult for you to have two passports for, issued by the United States of America. Now you can actually legally have two passports issued by the United States of America. Um, but in order to qualify for that second passport, you are in a situation where you have to prove to the U.S. Department of State that you have specific travel plans that you can't achieve with your first passport, either because of a conflict with some jurisdictions that won't accept you because you've been to a country they don't like or because your passport is stuck in a visa application or something like that. And when they issue the second passport, it's only issued for a validity period of two years. So it's hard to keep a second passport going. But you can apply for a passport card. It costs you an extra 15 bucks. And now you have two legal forms of official identification from the U.S. government. The passport card does not allow you to fly to a foreign country, but it does allow you to cross a land border between the United States, Mexico, Canada, and the Caribbean islands. So if you have a passport and a passport card, and they're stored in two different locations, if your passport is stolen, you can still get out of the United States. Another recommendation I would make is that everybody have multiple copies of a driver's license. In the United States, it's not permitted for you to have multiple copies of a passport with the exception of what I just detailed. But I'm not aware of laws in most states that would forbid you from having a couple of copies of your driver's license. And if there are laws, I think the risk of going afoul of those laws is relatively minor. Most of our states have a system where you simply go online and you apply for, uh, you just simply say, I changed. I moved, send me another passport, and you pay 25 bucks, something like that, and the, sorry, uh, and they'll ship you a second driver's license. Well, if you have two driver's licenses, first, nobody ever has to see your driver's license legally unless you are actually stopped in the act of driving. That's the only time at which you can be legally compelled to produce a driver's license. In all other circumstances, you can use an alternate form of identification. But if you have two driver's licenses and one is stored in your wallet every day and one is stored in your storage locker with your bug out trailer, now if your wallet is stolen, you still have a form of identification. 
So now if you move from, let's say, New Orleans, right? The hurricane came through town. All your stuff was messed up, but you got out of town. You still have a form of identification. So you can go to the phone store. You can uh, get a new phone. You can get a new phone plan. You can buy a computer. You can go down to the Apple store. You can say, hey, will you give me Apple financing? Here, I can prove my ID. People forget that the most important thing is to be able to prove your ID legally so that you can access systems of credit, so that you can access opportunities for a job, etc. The next thing is you better have the ability to get a job. Back to the income thing. What do you need? If you run out penniless out of New Orleans in the wake of Katrina and you are in a situation where it's the end of the world as we know it and you've got to get out, so you relocate to Texas or to Florida or wherever, when you get there, the first thing that you need is a job because if you have a job and you have income, you can fix all the other problems. But how do you get a job? Well, you need to have a resume or a list of, of things that you've done. You need to have identification to prove who you are so that you can be legally processed by the accounting department of the place you are applying for. You need to have copies of relevant licenses. For example, if you have professional licenses, law licenses, financial licenses, you need to have copies of those things. You need to have a copy of your transcripts if, if somebody is checking your college degrees, things like that. The paperwork is the primary foundation of being able to set up a new life. If you give two people, one person who has a financial bug out bag that's prepared with identification, access to credit cards, resumes, um, qualifications, job histories, testimonials, etc. If you give that person a bag with just those few things and you give another person a bag in the uh, with a lighter and a, you know, a, a all that stuff, kind of the physical preparedness stuff, the person who has the financial stuff is going to be far better suited in the vast majority of situations. Now, if we're living in the woods, you need the woods bag. But the, the chances of living in the woods are vanishingly remote versus your house being burned down and you having to relocate to another city and figure out how to get a job, how to establish yourself, how to get utilities turned on, how to prove your identity, etc. That's much more likely than living in the woods. Just so you know, you're preaching to the choir here. There, there's, there's nobody in this audience that's ready to run to Walmart, stock up their bag, and haul ass to the national park uh, in the middle of a disaster. That is, that is not what we teach here. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, if it's possible to prepare for an economic crisis in such a way that you can you can get rich during it or stay rich during it, um, no matter what happens. Kind of finishing up there. Yeah, in my opinion, I love the tagline of your show, Jack, right? How, how to live a better life if things get tough or even if you don't. And I appreciate that you're true to that in everything you create because there's no reason not to be well-suited for things to go well, and there's no reason for things not to be well-suited if things go poorly. Where much, much of my thinking on this came from was analyzing some of the problems of modern life. If you think that the only way to survive an economic crisis is to move to a remote bug out cabin in the middle of the woods, and that's the only way that you can do it, there's, there's, there are good arguments for having a remote cabin. But the challenge is always for people who wind up in those situations, how do I earn money? How do I uh, keep my things going? How do I provide opportunities for my children? This is a big deal for me. How do I provide opportunities for my children that don't just involve driving a tractor or, or being a guide of, in the woods? How do I do it? Now, in the modern era with the Internet, there are more and more opportunities, but it's still really, really tough. And I think if you do a, a review of survivalism as a specialty <clears> – <throat> in the United States, you see that no matter how bad it looks, 
although we don't think so, it could always get worse. The national debt has been a major problem for decades. And there were a lot of people in the 80s that thought, oh, can't cross this, can't cross this. Well, it did. And things are still going okay, sort of. So the chances of things kind of continuing on as they are now are much higher than the chances of things totally collapsing. So with that in mind, you have to be realistic. The great thing is all of the things that you do to prepare for things going bad can help you to do better. So you put money in, let's say you keep money in savings. That might, in cash. That might help you to, uh, to save money in case you get laid off. But it'll also help you to save money by doing bulk purchases or taking advantage of a deal. I bought cars where I stumbled across the car and somebody was just selling it. They had to sell it fast. I buy it at 50% off just because I have money and here, here's money. Um, I think everybody should carry a thousand dollars on them, right? Here, you need a car or you need, you need to buy this. Here, here's $500 and make it happen right away. So, the thing that protects you of having savings also gives you opportunities on the other hand. The second thing on a bigger scale, what happens when you are financially prudent, when you keep your expenses much lower than your income? Well, your neighbor is selling their house. Um, you know, husband just died, widow wants to sell the house, knows you, likes you, needs some money from it, but doesn't want to go through the hassle of it. You come in and you say, listen, I'll buy the house, but you don't have a lot of money, so you're going to take out a mortgage. Well, because you always keep your personal expenses low, you can afford that second mortgage. You can float it until you get the house renovated, rented, whatever needs to be done. But if you were spending all the money that you had, you wouldn't have that chance. You wouldn't be able to do that. Now, if we go to the bigger scale things of being prepared for bankruptcy, well, being prepared for bankruptcy means you have more opportunities. You might be able to take a bigger risk. If you know that none of your assets are exposed to the claims or the potential claims of creditors, you might start that business that's a bigger risk than the business that has lower risk because you know you are well protected with your personal finances or with offshore banking, offshore investing. I encourage people to, no matter your jurisdiction, look at investing and doing business in another jurisdiction. And frequently you can find much bigger opportunities for return in another jurisdiction because the economy is not as mature. It's tough in the United States of America to find investment assets that have the opportunity to go through the roof, especially at the business cycle where we are right now. But there are hundreds of other countries around the world that have totally different investment climates. Today, you can go and put your money in banks that are returning double-digit guaranteed interest rates guaranteed by that bank. Now, it's guaranteed by that bank. How good is that guarantee? You have to be confident of that. But when people are sitting in the United States earning 1% or less on their banking assets, we should all recognize that you can go to other jurisdictions and earn much, much more. Does that protect you if things get things go bad? Yes, because now all of your money is not in U.S. American banks. U.S. American banks measured on a global basis are very, very weak as compared to many other jurisdictions in terms of their capitalization, their safety, etc. So it protects you by moving to a potentially better banking system, but it also gives you the opportunity to make more money, and, and that makes a big, big difference. So I love the tagline of your show, and I think it can be applied in preparing for economic crisis every bit as much as everything else if we're intelligent and thoughtful about it. Cool, man. Well, as we wrap up here, do you want to tell people more about what you do, where they can learn more about you, get your podcast and find your blog and all that good stuff? 
Yeah, the best way, obviously, you're listening to us on a podcast. If you want to hear anything that I talk about, just search the podcast player of choice for Radical Personal Finance. You'll find me. Uh, I've do been doing the show for about, I guess, five years at this point in time. There's 650 episodes. Um, there's a huge amount of content there. At this point in time, I release about two to three episodes a week, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. I also have uh, do a little bit of writing, and I have a number of courses at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. So I teach uh, high-value courses on some of these. I do a little bit of private consulting. You can find those details all at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. And I'll make sure there's links in the show notes today as well, so if people get by and look up today's episode, which is episode 2,453, you'll be able to find all the relevant notes that go along with this interview with our guest today, Joshua Sheets. Joshua, thanks for uh, being with us today. really appreciate you spending about an hour with us at the Survival Podcast. Thank you for having me on, Jack. Great interview. If you've never checked out Josh's website or his podcast, you should. Again, RadicalPersonalFinance.com. Link in today's show notes, as always. Now that we've wrapped up the show, I want to remind you of a couple ways you can help support our show. Uh, number one, of course, is become a member, a member of the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get great discounts. The two sponsors of the day today both do discounts. Those alone can pay for your entire membership. Uh, but check it out. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. Check out all the companies that do discounts. And go ahead and sign up. It'll cost you about 18 cents an episode. If you love the show, that's cheap. I would say you probably got more than 18 cents of value out of today's show, and I hope you do out of every show. So you can look at it just that way. Like, I think the show's worth at least that much. But you know what? Honestly, MSB, if you use it, You should have, if you think I suck, if you decide I don't like Jack anymore, you should still have MSB. It puts money back in your pocket. Check it out. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe. The other way that you can help us out is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. All you got to do, go to tspaz, that is tspaz.com. You'll see everything I've reviewed on Amazon, etc. But it doesn't matter what you buy. As long as you start your shopping there, you help support us in the work that we do today for you. I have a product that I absolutely endorse. I promise you I endorse it because it's a book. It's a book that's available in Kindle format only. It's not in hard copy. And uh, it is awesome. And the reason I endorse it is I co-wrote it along with Dustin DeFries. It is The 1% Effect, Sell Your Home Fast at Asking in Any Market. Let me tell you something about the impetus of this book. I talked about my method of selling property on the show many times. Dustin came to me and said, if I canonize this all into a book, can we sell it and you know do a revenue split? I'm like, yeah, I'd be interested in that. And uh, you know, he kept sending me copies of what he had back, and we kept refining it until I was like, yeah, this really end-to-end explains exactly what I'm trying to say. And how much is this book that is guaranteed to help you sell your property at asking in any market? It is, well, it's, it's really expensive. I mean, if you think about it, what I'm talking about is making sure that you can get ten, twenty, or thirty thousand dollars more for your house, or that you can sell it this month instead of three months from now and not make three more house payments. So you would think for something like that, that's got the proven track record that I have in doing this, it'd be really expensive. Guys, it's on Kindle. It's on Kindle. Three ninety nine is how we have it priced this week. Three ninety nine. You can get the one percent effect for four bucks. So why wouldn't you do it? Oh, by the way, if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. So what I would love is for more of you guys to check this book out, give it a read, and consider giving us a review. That would really help us out reaching past the TSP marketplace. Again, if you have Kindle Unlimited, and many of you do, 
just consider going ahead and getting a copy for free. Again, it's called The 1% Effect, but the best way to get there, you know, go through the website, use the link, and that helps me out as an affiliate with Amazon. With that, let's go ahead and talk about our song of the day today. This is uh, a song that hit me in a way that I didn't know that it would. Um, this is uh, written by, it's from Styx, and it's called Show Me The Way. And if you don't think you've heard this song, you've heard this song. Like, as soon as you start listening to, like, the first intro to it, you'll be like, yeah, I've heard this song. And I totally forgot about something. When I looked it up on songfacts.com, which is where I usually go to make sure, you know, I have the background of the song right now, um, it said that it was connected to the first Gulf War. And I kind of forgot about this. And as a Gulf War I veteran, this intrigued me. And what I realized is a veteran of the time who, who came right out of training and then went overseas. I didn't have any idea what was going on with the rest of the country. We knew about the wars heating up. We knew about that we were going to get deployed. We knew all that. But we, we didn't, like, all the things that you guys were doing to support the troops with big quotes around it, um, we didn't know you were doing that. I mean, we, we deployed. Things were not like they are today where, you know, soldiers have cell phones in basic. I found out that they're required to because that way command can get in touch with them. Like, we didn't have that. We had... One TV that on Sunday nights when the drill sergeants weren't looking, we could sneak in and, and get the TV on with the little makeshift uh, uh, rabbit ears. And we were, if we got caught, we'd have been in deep crap. And watched, like, in living color. I think that's what we watched every Sunday night because there was this hole in time where we could get away with it. The CQ drill sergeant was downstairs. Our drills were gone. Wouldn't be back till Monday morning. That was our entire exposure to what was going on. And uh, so I didn't know that this had such an affinity with uh, the first Gulf War. And there's this... Montage, this montage that was played on the radio over and over apparently during this time uh, with politicians speaking about the war, generals speaking about the war, and parents uh, or you know spouses and children speaking about hoping daddy comes home. And somebody took that version and made a video with it. And my first thought was, I'm going to play that for you, especially being one day away from D-Day. And I couldn't do it. I'm going to play the original version for you. The original version, um, without all the add-ins, it, it came about. A, a, it really didn't come about to be used in the way that it was used. And uh, it was written by Dennis DeYoung, and it was written as a prayer during a self-described crisis of faith. So this was about his relationship with his God, not to be used for propagating war. When I watched the video, there were some very moving statements by family members. But all I could hear from the politicians was grandiose bullshit in my head. And there's just a massive amount of American military might shown, which is what first Gulf War was. Like, if you're, I'm going to say this, if you're going to fight a war, that's the way to do it. And if it's not worth doing that, don't fight the war. I mean, that was, let's wipe it out, let's achieve the objective and leave. Which you got to give Bush one some credit. At least he was smart enough to do that. He was smarter than his son, I think. But what I really saw was bullying. One nation completely bullying another nation. And thinking about the fact that everything that was made known when I came back from there and then went to my permanent duty station to finish out my, my enlistment, was that we only lost a couple hundred people. And it was a resounding victory. 
And they, hey, we killed 100,000 Iraqis. It's probably more. And I remember being a young man and a soldier and wearing a uniform and being so proud of my country and so proud of myself for being a tiny, itty-bitty, insignificant part of that. And today I have regret when I think about that being a tiny and insignificant part of taking 100,000 lives over control of oil. And this video made me very conflicted because while I am totally opposed to what the United States is doing intervening in the world right now in the Middle East, and I really think we need to stop, there was a piece of me that always held on to, but my time was different. We had an ally, we had an ally that was invaded, we repelled the invasion, and we went about our way. But I have to realize it wasn't that simple. And this is something that a lot of soldiers are going to deal with. People that were not an insignificant, tiny part like me. If I can feel that way, I can only imagine how people are going to feel that we're on three and four deployments in active combat in these current theaters and called in airstrikes when they have, 30 years from now, their time that they sit back and look at something like this. And that maybe is the real need for a song like this. If we're asking for a higher power, regardless of what you believe about God, to show us the way, I don't think that any higher power worth following would show us the way to killing our fellow man in anything other than direct defense. And maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a better way. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.